welcome to season five of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Stefano Bini. Season five of the podcast will bring you outstanding presentations from the COVID-19 Orthopedic Response Summit, powered by DocSF, the Digital Orthopedics Conference in San Francisco. It was streamed live in April 2020. We had over 4,600 registrants join us from around the world for what proved to be a really groundbreaking event. What you can expect are short, concise, and brilliant presentations that last approximately 15 minutes each. In them, we review the clinical aspects of COVID-19, leadership and design thinking solutions, digital technologies deployed to fight coronavirus, and the impact of COVID-19 on clinical practices. Each presentation will be followed by a question and answer period hosted by myself or my co-host, the insightful Shauna Butler. We hope you enjoyed these presentations. This very heartfelt and moving interview with Dr. Luigi Zagra, senior orthopedic surgeon in Milan, spoke to the human cost of COVID-19 in one of the worst hit cities in Italy and the impact this disease had on the doctors in the area. Let's join Dr. Zagra and my co-host, Shauna Butler, on DocSF's virtual stage. Hello, welcome to the next session of COVID-19, the orthopedic response. I am so thrilled to welcome you to meet Dr. Luigi Zagra. Dr. Zagra is a hip surgeon. Uh, he likes to discount what it is that he does, and actually he's in a very special moment in time in a very special location. Dr. Zagra is in Milan, in Lombardy, and we've been hearing a lot about Lombardy. It really has been the eye of the storm of COVID-19, and you've been experiencing this, Dr. Zagra, in a very real way. And I'm so glad to have you here today with us to share as, as a hip surgeon at Galeazzi Institute, where you perform hip surgeries. And this pandemic has just had a huge impact on how you're taking care of orthopedic patients. So I would love for you to take some time with us today and walk through the very real and practical experiences that you've had in trying to continue care and reinvent care in real time. So from there, let me turn this stage over to you, let you go ahead. Thank you, Shona. Good morning to everyone. Good morning to the European, good afternoon to the European ones. And thank you to Shona for the introduction. Thank you to Stefano Bini and the San Francisco group for inviting me. This is very exciting to share my experience with you from Italy, from the eye of the storm. I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not a virology, I'm not an expert of intensive care. The people who are in the front line now, I'm just an orthopedic surgeon doing mainly elective surgery that went in this storm in the last month, months and half. We are in Europe here, and you know that now the pandemic is in Europe. And more than in Europe, it's in Italy when all the stories started. It's even difficult, and it was, to prepare this presentation because the data changed so rapidly. And also the recommendation, everything is changing so rapidly that it's not easy to go and be updated to everything. But I will show my experience. So this is Europe. 
And this is Italy, where we, we have, unfortunately, the greatest number of cases, but especially the greatest number of deaths. In Italy, and we have to consider this because it will be important to understand also some part of the situation. The population is around 60 million. The median age is 45.7 years. This is data from our National Institute of Statistics. Life expectancy is for the females 85.3, for the males is 81. And we have a, a balance, birth and deaths, which is unfortunately negative. It was in 2019. Unfortunately, probably it will be worse this year, but this negative balance is 212,000 uh, uh, people less births than deaths. And that's what happened starting around the beginning of February, mid-February. The real problem went uh, spread out out of the small pandemic area that were at the beginning in the south of my region in Lombardia, at the beginning of at the, at the end of February, second part of February, then it went out and it went in all the country in terms of number. But I will come back to this. And what we see that we have a vast majority of all patients, but 10% of deaths of these patients are younger than 70. Most are males. Most are, as I told you, older. The median age is 62. But again, there is a small number even of young patients, including deaths. Most of them have two or three comorbidities. 50% has three comorbidities. But there is a small number of 2% with no comorbidities at all. So. The problem is, as you know from everywhere, from the media, from everywhere, from your country now, it's a big problem. But when we speak about Italy, we speak really about very different settings because we have some areas where the number of cases are quite poor, luckily, especially in the south, in the islands, in some region. But there is this real huge pandemic area, maybe that all of this, you have seen these dramatic images in the uh, uh, broadcasting, in the, in the TV, where they show that they were military with the cadavers from the hospital. This is an image from Bergamo. Bergamo now is probably the worst scenario around. Bergamo is 50 kilometers from me. I am in Milan, the capital of Lombardia. Bergamo is 50 kilometers from here. And then there is Brescia, another huge endemic area. And, but even in this area, even in Lombardia, not everywhere is the same. And in the last weeks, something moved more to Milan, which is the biggest town. Luckily, not as much as in the other towns. But again, a big problem because patients from this area had to come to us to be treated. And this is the most dramatic slide in some way. There is the daily report from our national protection from the, the government. And there is what we have every day around six o'clock. Every one of us went to the media, went to the web and heard this sad situation. We see that this is yesterday. We had the new one in one hour. It's 13,155 deaths. Yesterday it was 727 more than 31 of March. And 60% of this 
are in Lombardia, my region. And this number includes 770 medical doctors, most of them active doctors. So what happens to my hospital? As I told you before, my hospital is not in the very front line because it's not a general hospital, it's an orthopedic hospital. So we have to stop all the elective surgeries. That was one month ago. We stopped the outpatient visit, only suture and plaster removal at the moment. No relatives are admitted, no one is admitted in the hospital now. And there are street controls at the entrance, inquiry, body temperature dissection, everything that you can see now coming on on your countries as well that started around one month ago. What was the reason to stop elective surgery? To save resources for the COVID-19 patients in terms of uh, staff, of doctors, of anesthetists, especially, of nurses, especially. To reduce the risk of contamination, people moving inside and outside the hospital. We all know that the hospital is the most dangerous place for this. It was, it is still, but it was especially in the beginning where we had not the clear perception of the whole problem. And especially for the patient, they need a safe and effective rehabilitation time. If they got the virus during the rehabilitation time, it can be a big problem. So we stopped all the elective surgeries. What did it mean for our center? Our center is, as I told you, an orthopedic center. Now I think it's the one that does the highest number of orthopedic procedure, or at least the highest number of total joints and spine surgeries in Italy. There were 4,000 last year, total joints, 1,400 spine procedures. Now, at the moment, they are zero. We have 11 operating rooms plus three for day hospital. They were closed. Three of them were converted, completely separated, as you will see. One is for COVID-positive patient. Two are for COVID-negative patient. I will show you later which type of patient. Outpatient visit from 1,300 to less than 20 patients nowadays. And our beds are all converted now for this situation. One, less than one-third of the, of the beds are working now, but because all the patients is try to be alone in the room, we improve the number of intensive care beds for COVID and non-COVID. And then we have around 50% of patient positive and patient negative. The patient negative includes some patient coming from outside, coming from other hospital, where our anesthetists, our intensive internal doctors take care of them with our support, and trauma cases coming from the emergency room or coming from other hospital. Since March 14, that this became executive, there was a, a, a clear definition by the government of the region, the region Lombardia, what you can do, what you cannot do. We are not allowed, as I told before, to do elective surgery. You can do septic arthritis, malignant tumors, benignant tumors at risk of fracture, some orthopedic problem that can create neurological deficit, rapidly progressive arthritis with bone necrosis, acute tendon lesions, and total joints dislocation or severely losing. This is what you can do. You are officially allowed to do this type of surgery. But 
we can do, we got from the experience that out of trauma is not you must do. And it's really a case-by-case case decision. So basically, now, in this moment, we are doing just acute septic cases and malignant tumors by the tumor group, which is dedicated to this surgery in our hospital. We had, of course, to completely separate the journey of the patient, starting from the admission in the hospital from the emergency room, screening of all the patient. Then they go in an observational area. If they are positive, they go in the positive beds and in the positive rooms. If they are negative, they go on the other way under strict control. They are divided. You can see this room on your right in there. It's not Usually it's not there. This is the communication between the rooms and the operating theaters. Now it's closed. We have to, 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 to build a, a wall to separate closely all the different areas of the hospital. And this is my department. My department became the COVID department on the second floor. This is our room, the room of my team, of my doctor, which is closed now because it's in an area where you cannot uh, go without protection, without uh, uh, taking care of this positive patient that, as I told you, they can be orthopedic and non-orthopedics, as we have seen before from our report that every day our administration uh, take about the, the number of patients in the hospital. I think, I have to go back to trauma cases, as I told you before, now you are, I, I have trauma in my experience as most of orthopedics, at the beginning of my career and for many years, but in the last years, we were dedicated to elective surgery. We have to go back to trauma cases to support the trauma team that does, that does routinely trauma cases in our hospital. And they are overwhelmed with the, the, the number of, of, of duties. So we have to support them. We have to improve the number of emergency duties and even to support in the cover department. This guy that you can see here, he is the chief of the anesthetist uh, department. Is it really in the front line? He needs to control the intensive care unit. He needs to control this patient. So we just follow him. He's real, the big, uh, uh, in the big front line in our hospital, leading all the story, because you know, these are the doctors on the front line. What do we need mainly here now? We need a rapid and reliable test which we don't have yet now. Rapid. Reliable, positive, go immediately for an early surgery. I mean, for the trauma patient coming to the emergency. And if possible, go to an early discharge to have them less as possible in the operating theater. We need collaboration. Even the orthopedic surgeons are supporting their colleagues and flexibility for this reason. This is one friend of mine, a colleague. He's the head of the orthopedic department in a big general hospital. And he's taking care now together with his colleagues about the COVID patient with real severe problems of respiratory problems. Because in their hospital, they are not allowed now to do trauma. Trauma are uh, uh, collected in some hospitals. Minor, my, my hospital is one of the two half of the area for minor trauma. So we take care of the majority of the fractures that now decrease in number because no people is allowed to go around no sports with the, the, the highest number of cases are all people falling down at home that came from femoral head uh, neck fracture. Uh, but they are uh, 
collected mainly in some hubs because sometimes in general hospital they don't have the possibility to operate on this patient. So we must be open for this. Another big need, another big problem with the daily activity is communication. COVID positive as patients have a clear way to communicate. Every day there is a task force, they communicate, your, your relative is okay with the relatives that cannot meet them. But we need also with the COVID negative now, because the COVID negative now are isolated. No relatives are admitted in the hospital. So again, this is our task to communicate with the patient, to the, with the relatives, and to communicate even with the patients that are at home, that can suffer some fever, can have some concern after the surgery, after the discharge. This is one of our daily activity and of our task. And now let me give you some true life stories that uh, I see today every day. This is Michele. This guy is 88 years old. He had a nail four months ago. He's in a wheelchair. He was scheduled for surgery on 12th of March, one week before. But we had to postpone. This is the fragile patient, a risk for surgery. So if we can, we discuss with the patient, we discuss especially with the doctor about the risk and benefits of doing surgery like this that can be necessary and we have to postpone, but we don't know when. This is Maria Teresa. Maria Teresa is 89 years old. She has diabetes. She is in bed. She developed heel bed sore, luckily on the other side. She was scheduled for surgery on 10th of March, but again, we had to postpone. In the meantime, some of the, her relatives got the virus, so they went in quarantine. So now she's attended just from one relative, and she's extremely afraid about the situation. She's again a frail patient. She needs surgery. She cannot be in a long wait list, but we cannot, and we discussed again, and we cannot operate on that. Or there is another guy. This is Fernando. Fernando was operated more than one month ago. After multiple revision, we went to this monoblock handmade cement spacer. He's 77 years old. This was a septic knee. We did, there was not still the crisis at that time. It was more than one month ago. Now he's at home, he's fine. But afterwards, he developed some fever. So there is some concerns. What about this? Is again the knee? Is the something else? There are so many cases all around. We know the positive ones, but a lot of people are not able to do the test now. So we have to stay in contact with him with the family doctor and take of this patient also from remote. Or Luigi, Luigi is 80 years old. He got a spacer more than two months ago with severe limitation. But then for the next uh, um, uh, consultation, it was automatically rescheduled by the computer in September. So again, luckily we have some uh, uh, staff in the administration that is take care also of this very they pay attention on the problems of this patient because the situation is so tough for everyone. So they call the patient, they call the doctors, reorganize this. Again, it's a problem of organization. This guy cannot wait until September. But anyway, we cannot take care. And even it's more safe, avoid a consultation for him in the hospital. Or Savino. Savino lives 1,500 kilometers from Milan. He went for revision. He has a huge osteolysis after a primary total hit, and it was revised one month, 20 years ago. It was okay. 
it was looking for discharge. Then fever came one month later. Now we discovered he's COVID positive now. So he's in, in the COVID department where they take care of him. So this is the true stories that we face every day. Coming to my conclusion, things change every day. I tell we can present some data, tomorrow they can change. But be ready for the worst scenario. What do we need now? This is my experience. It's flexibility. You can have to change your work one day after the other and collaboration especially with our colleagues that are in the front line, the anesthetists, the intensive care, the pulmonary, and so on. Your safety is patient safety. Be careful. As I show you, we had 70 doctors all around Italy that died. And some of my uh, colleagues in the hospital were in quarantine, some of them with fever, not major problem, but some problems that needed oxygen. So be safe. The patient at the moment needs a safe doctor that can be able to treat them. Postpone as much as possible with a safe journey for the cases that you really cannot be postponed. And there is a case based one by one that you have to discuss with the patient, with the relatives, if they can wait in case of a malignancy or in case of post-traumatic or severe loosening and so on. At the end of all this story, this time is a great opportunity for some personal question, or at least it was for me. Why did I decide to become a doctor? How can I be useful for my community now as elective total joint replacement surgeon? Thank you very much for your attention. At the end of my presentation, I just want to invite you to an initiative that we will have on Monday in Europe which is an extraordinary edition of our educational webinars. Again, we will share different experiences from different European countries about the COVID situation. And I hope that we will be able to be present in October in France and Lille for the meeting of the European Eve Society. Many thanks again. Gosh, Luigi, thank you. And I just want you to know that most of the questions that are coming in have to do with your colleagues and that number that you shared. 70 physicians, is that what you mentioned? Because we had several questions about that. Yep. And I'm sure that there are nurses and respiratory techs and people in your lab. So there is a great deal of weight and gravity that all of us are experiencing at this moment. And uh, I can only imagine how sensitive and tender your heart must feel at this moment. So thank you for going through the, the details. Those details are incredibly important. And to your point, you know, you asked, it's a wonderful moment to really ask those existential questions. Why did I choose to be in the helping professions? When you think about that, that's a really weighty question. And um, do you ever... I mean, right now at this moment, what is that answer? Why did you decide to become a physician? That's a good question, a bit historical. I have a history of orthopedic surgery mm -hmm. in my family. So this was the starting point. And time by time, I realized how I was lucky to have this opportunity to start this work. Yeah. How I had the chance 
to treat my patient at the highest levels. Right. Thanks to the fact that I had around me great colleagues, great teachers, and now I have great friends, I can say, in Italy, around Europe, and I can say also all around the world, where I can learn a lot on the best practice and on the best way to treat my patients. That's what I want to provide them, take care of my patients. So you mentioned there were a couple of things that we've got a lot of questions. And one of the things that is really important right now, you mentioned communication and planning. So we've got this unusual, unheard of situation of people in isolation. And there's that human connection that is so important to the recovery. So it's not only keeping the entire team safe so that they're able to take care of more people, but it's keeping the patient safe and keeping the patient's family safe. And now we've got this added dimension of a an interruption in our communication. What's been that impact on, um, I mean, the overall healing? But, you know, as you mentioned, there's a human element to this with the isolation and the communication. Can you answer? Just, I mean, and I'm trying to yeah, ask yeah, no. a really succinct question, but what what's the impact to the humans and how what are the creative ways that we're solving that communication what we have seen all around us especially in this difficult time people want to communicate especially from colleague to another uh-huh. in the in the routine everyone is under stress everyone is sees thoughts this is in the, in the common scenario. Now, everyone is thinking deeply, more deeply, their work. Much more available for collaboration. Now, we are in a big institution. This is a clear example for me with different groups of uh, shoulder, foot, uh, hip, and knee, and uh, spine, and, and so on. Now, everyone, they are working in the same direction. There is no other chance now. Mm-hmm. And the third direction is this to take care of this patient, which is not easy, as I told you. And remember that the, even the COVID negative, they cannot meet their relatives now. Because yeah. we are afraid if a relative comes to the hospital and bring the virus. Everybody's at risk. Few days, everybody's, everybody will be at risk. And these are very fragile people because now we are taking care of yeah. the fractures. So that the reason why we stopped the more elective surgery. Mm-hmm. And the, there is some dramatic situation, as I showed you, because many times the most fragile patients are the ones that they need surgery because of loosening of the implants, because of cut off of the nail, as I showed you before. So we have really, very case-based on each patient. That reduce the number now, because now uh, who can postpone? Spontaneously postpone, because they are afraid to go to the hospital. So there is a spontaneous reduction of, of the majority of the election surgery, the elective surgery. But there are the fractures, there are the tumors. And you need to communicate in some way with this patient as you can with the negative. We take care more of the negative, but also some of us selected of the positive and of the relatives. You must be open, phone them if needed, give an update every day, every today. This is of massive importance. Right. So that, there were two questions that came up quite a bit. One of them was clearly this is a dramatic change to discharge planning. So even if you get somebody into the OR and you're successful with all of the surgery, there's a huge complication within the discharge planning as to 
Who's going to take care of them? How are they going to take care of them? What have you learned, um, the practical management of the post-op care? There are two big issues. The, you know, everyone is happy to work with this team. Doctor, nurses, operating theaters. This makes you much more efficient, reduce the possibility of any mistake, and so on. Now, it's not possible in this situation because maybe that your nurse is, I don't know, positive. So he's in, she's in quarantine. Or she's now devoted to the COVID patient because when we, mm-hmm. you reduce the number of activity in the operating theater, most of the nurses went into intensive care units to support the anesthesis with this patient. So first of all, you must be really flexible and collaborative because also the efficiency of your operating theater will decrease a lot. And second, about you mentioned about this chart and how you follow this patient. Sometimes mm-hmm. you have to treat something that you are not confident every day. And this is a huge problem. I don't have an answer for this because all the rehabilitation centers, for, the, for example, where they take usually care, not all, but may, most of the rehabilitation center for these old patients are not open. Right. Some of them, they have the virus that spread in old communities in some areas, and some other reduce the number of beds because a lot of people can be positive, cannot go to work, and so on. So this is really a big task. Yes. Luckily, as I mentioned to you, the number of surgeries, elective went to zero, close to zero, even trauma decreased a lot. But what we have seen, for example, that at the beginning of the, of the problem, we were already for a big activity in the emergency room because we as hospital were nominated hub for trauma, minor trauma, not polytrauma because it's an orthopedic center. So double time people in the emergency room for taking care of patient and fracture. At the beginning, poor activity. All the people is at home, no sports. So the number of these cases decreases Dramatically, yeah. Dramatically, yes. And that's probably what we need to ask everybody to do is when we say stay at home. My message on this, on this show is you need to coordinate in the institution, but also on a local, regional, or maybe national level. Because afterwards, in the big general hospital, they were not able to take care even of one or two fractures. Mm-hmm. So even if the femoral neck fracture, for example, decreased a lot, they are concentrating now to us. So we decreased at the beginning and now we increase again. Because even if the number is not so many, they are concentrated, which is a good thing. We had a patient yesterday that was in a big general hospital in dialysis. But they were not able to operate on her there for the fracture, for a femoral neck fracture. So she came to our hospital. We did the total... the. the hemiatropathy for the fracture, and then she went back for dialysis to the general hospital. You need this type of organization, interconnection with hospital, with colleagues, to give the best treatment in this time. The takeaway on this is extraordinary levels of communication, wider and deeper than we normally have because of the complexity. The other question that has come up quite a bit is people wanted to know about the OR protocols that you're using for hip fractures. So the very specific protocol that you have for that, is that something you can speak to? We use basically the same protocols that means uh, uh, fixation or Mm -hmm. hemiatroplasty or total hypertroplasty. There is big increase of hemiatroplasty because you know, 
we have more older people yes. compared than usual. And uh, uh, we are also a bit afraid about complication because you can follow less this patient. Right. So in a patient that maybe one month ago for a fracture, two months ago for a fracture, they do a total hip because we know that there is a better outcome on the long term. Maybe then nowadays we are a bit more afraid about how to follow up this patient and we go a bit more on the indication for an Amy. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know, but that's what I'm seeing in this, in this phase. But the most important protocol there is to know before going to the operating theater if the patient is positive or negative. Because, and in this time, the patient that comes in the emergency stays in, a, uh, in an area mm -hmm. where we wait. Then, if he's positive, he goes, and in the beginning, all of them are considered and treated as positive. Then, the positive ones goes to one department in one floor, the negative ones go to another department in another floor. And they have a completely different and separate rooms with different staffs. Is your, is, your, is your screening including a lung CT on all patients or um, no, just people? No, okay. no, 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 no. We do the, the common test. And the, mm -hmm. unfortunately, that we need, that, that's, that's the situation now. We need one day to have the result. That's why, that why I mentioned about the needs, a fast, reliable test. Okay. At the moment, we don't have. So we have to wait for the test. They arrive, for example, yesterday morning. We wait for the test. If the test is negative, we go on the surgery uh, one, one day and a half after. So we cannot operate immediately because of this. But right. we, we know that some tests are coming, so we, 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 are, we are waiting for this. And uh, another important point is that the, the trauma guys of our uh, hospital that usually take care of the trauma because we have this emergency for, for minor traumas are coordinating everything. And me, even if I am head of one department, I follow their instruction and I support some surgeries. They cannot do all the surgeries now. So some of the surgeries are done by my team, some others from another. So all the teams are supporting the trauma guys that coordinate the whole story because you know you need one who coordinates in each center. So we've got a lot of people. We've got a couple of um, minutes, and I've got one question that a lot of people have been asking, and they want to know if you've changed back to the reduction in cast instead of surgery for some fracture cases, um, is there a changing indication for the surgery? Um, and just they're, they're wondering about the NHS guidelines. Um, is, there, is it better you, 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 you mean, than you cast? Mean you mean about the wrist or other type of fracture, of course, that's what I mean. I think that we need this, of course. Mm -hmm. But again, of a major importance is the discussion with the patient. Okay. And say, in common times, maybe that there is an indication here for surgery. Okay? But be careful what surgery means now. Mm -hmm. What the conservative treatment means on the other side. Maybe a poor outcome, but this a bit poor outcome with the conservative treatment can get you safer not going to the hospital and give the chance to other patients to be treated in a better way in the same hospital. So I think that with, we, we, with the trauma guys that uh, uh, control of the situation in our hospital, we try to follow guidelines. Maybe that we are, as, with the, as I told before, with the hemiatropathy, we are 
going a bit more to conservative treatment, of course, especially in the old population, because we know if they got the virus, it's extremely dangerous. But again, it's a discussion with the patient mm -hmm. about which treatment is best and a balance between advantages and disadvantages of conservative and surgery. So we hear you. Communication, and we send you a lot of love and a lot of thanks and a lot of support. Um, thank you, Luigi. Um, it's just been great having you here, and we so appreciate all of these insights and a deep, deep on-the-ground understanding of what we need to do. And I'm looking forward to the fact that we can join you at these next conferences. And do you want to remind us these dates before we say goodbye? I want to thank you for the opportunity. But most of all, I want to thank you of my colleagues and nurses that are in the front line, like taking care of our people, of our patients, and uh, we are here to support them. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We will see you in the next session. And I hope, Luigi, that you'll join us there. And I'm sure that people are going to continue to have questions. And we will be reaching out to you. And thank you for being so um, generous with your time and with your learnings. Thank you, Shona. Bye-bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the COVID-19 Orthopedic Response Summit powered by DOCSF, the Digital Orthopedics Conference, San Francisco. We hope you'll explore other episodes in this and other series. We are grateful to be joined by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery in promoting this event as well as many other organizations such as AUKUS, the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, the NHS Innovations Team, and EKA, the European Knee Associates to help us share this content to a global audience. Please consider rating this podcast in your favorite player, recommend our platform to others you think may enjoy our content, and visit docsf.health to sign up to join our community of innovators and change agents. Be the first to hear our next event. docsf.health is spelled D-O-C-S-F dot health, H-E-A-L-T-H. Thank you. <laughs>